My first book was called The Courage to Heal. She said, Laura, this is not the courage to heal. It's the courage to reveal. And I was devastated by her feedback. I stopped working on the book for many months. I stopped talking to her for a long time. But ultimately, I came around and realized I had to reveal more of my weaknesses. Hello and welcome to Emerging Form, a podcast on creative process. I'm Rosemary Wetola Tromer. Hey, Rosemary. This is Christy Ashwanden. So happy to be here. Hi, Christy. And I'm excited about our guest because she is someone who I've admired for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to get to talk with her on this podcast is exciting. We've actually become friends more in the last six months or so. So mm -hmm. that's fun, too, just to she's becoming more and more real for me as a person. <laughs> you know what happens when your heroes become real people and how exciting oh, that is. Yeah, well, well, I know you've been raving about her new memoir. So tell us more about her. Well, Laura Davis is the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, The Courage to Heal, and four other groundbreaking books. And in addition to writing books that inspire, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. And for more than 20 years, she has helped people find their voices and tell their stories and hone their craft. She's been published in Publishers Weekly, Writer's Digest, Crime Reads, Brevity, The New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, and a featured speaker for the National Association of Memoir Writers. She's a popular craft teacher at the San Miguel Writers Conference, and you can learn more about her retreats and workshops and classes and read the first five chapters of her memoir at lauradavis.net. Let's bring her on. Welcome to Emerging Form, Laura. Oh, thank you. I've been really looking forward to this interview for a long time. For a long time. Hi, welcome. <laughs> many months. We've talked oh. about it for many, many months. <laughs> for many months. Uh -huh. And I am excited about your new book, uh, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And let's just start with a synopsis. Tell us a little bit about your new book and how you came to write it. Well, it's a mother-daughter story, um, mm. and it really examines the endurance of mother-daughter love under very trying circumstances. And mm -hmm. um, it's really the story about uh, can you caretake a parent who betrayed you in the past? That's that's like one of the core questions wow. the book uh, looks at. It also really looks at the fallacy of memory, you know, how mm -hmm. it both protects us and can betray us. Mm -hmm. um, and the inciting incident of the book, you know, every book has something that kicks it off is uh, my mother and I have been really deeply estranged over some very incredibly difficult issues. We've struggled to try to reconcile. The only way we have been able to have a relationship is 3,000 miles apart from each other. You know, mm -hmm. her on the East Coast, me on the West Coast. And mm -hmm. when she's just about to turn 80, uh, she calls me in Santa Cruz, California, where I live uh, one day. And while well, I'm making spaghetti sauce, and she says, I'm moving to your town for the rest of my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, surprise. Yeah, surprise. So that, you know, I, I both um, had complete dread and anxiety about that and thought it was going to ruin yeah. my entire life and that I would be a failure as a daughter uh, because mm -hmm. it was such a loaded relationship. And there was another part of me that was kind of thinking maybe this is an opportunity to actually heal our relationship the rest of the way. So I, I mm -hmm. was at war inside myself and there's this yeah. historical war between my mother and I. And then the book is really about what happened um, from that point of that phone call until a little bit after her death. Um, 
And then it also tells a lot of the story of how did we get so estranged in the first place? Mm-hmm. 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 It's, it is pretty powerful, this, this way that you express the war inside of you throughout this book, right? You'd think that's one thing that you do really well is, is express this inner conflict of, I want to be a good daughter. Am I failing as a daughter? And I, I want her here and I don't want to be doing this. And there's all of that is, is really powerful. And I'm curious how, does that tie in? You were saying about how one of the things that you're exploring in this book is, is the many different kind of layers of truth and how difficult it can be to tell the truth and the fluidity of truth. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it took me 10 years to write this book, which is a long mm-hmm. time. And in, there are a lot of reasons. Um, for one, I, I just felt like I didn't have the writing chops, that I could not pull it off, even though I, mm-hmm. I've been a writing teacher for over 20 years. I've written six books before, but wow. writing a memoir, a story was very different than the kind of books I've written before, You know, sure. which are information books. I really had that genre down, but this required mm-hmm. a whole different... So I didn't think I was capable. I had to learn a lot of new skills. Um, I was mm-hmm. really worried about what my family members would say about this, which we could talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- I think the other thing is that the the initial drafts, I was the hero and my mother was the villain. You mm, know, yeah, and, that doesn't work. Right? And it was, um, you know, I I, I was prote- I was writing a very protected version of myself. I wanted to mm-hmm. look good, and I didn't want to show my underbelly. And um, I have a really good friend who's a, was a creative writing teacher for 30 years at the university level. And she read an early draft and she just like ripped into me. And, <laughs> and she basically, she's not like a, she's very blunt, you know, and, and not like a kind critiquer or anything. You uh-huh. know, she doesn't hold anyone's hand. And she basically said, you know, my first book was called The Courage to Heal. She said, Laura, this is not The Courage to Heal. It's The Courage to Reveal. Ooh. And so yeah. I, I was devastated by her feedback. I stopped working on the book for many months. I stopped talking right. to her for a long time. But ultimately, I came around and realized I had to reveal more of my weaknesses, you know, that mm-hmm. I couldn't just and that I had to make my mother three dimensional. We both had to be three dimensional or this book was never mm-hmm. going to work. And so that took me many years to really be mm-hmm. able to um reveal my failings and and to accentuate mm-hmm. them in some places and to show all the places I did fail as a daughter as well as the places I succeeded as a daughter and and just the humanity of being a caregiver you know instead of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. painting some portrait that was not true and delving into that ambivalence I think it just took me a long time to be able to do that sure and I think um, what I'm hearing here too is that there are sort of two parts to this, right? There is the the writing part, but before you can do that, you have to do the sort of personal processing part, right? Like you have to, you have to have, it, it sounds as though when you first started, maybe you hadn't fully processed some of this stuff and you hadn't sort of come to terms. You know, I, I know sometimes, you know, a, a memoir can be sort of an internal journey. And I wonder, you know, what your journey was writing this. And, you know, did you have to stop and sort of do some internal processing before you could write? (laughs) That is such an understatement. (laughs) Uh, You know, I thought I was resolved. Like when my mother Mm -hmm. died, I mean, I was working on this book while she was um, declining. She had dementia Mm -hmm. and I I would sit in these doctor's appointments with her and like take notes describing the room. I knew I was going to write about her and that I couldn't remember enough if I didn't take notes about what was happening. So I always was aware Mm -hmm. that I wanted to write it, although for a long time I didn't think I would publish it. 
for a lot mm. of reasons. And I, I had to protect myself and create this bubble that I was writing this for myself. So I felt pretty resolved. I did feel resolved with my mother by the time she died. Um, but obviously, there was a lot I didn't understand about the story. And I, I think in writing memoir, you, you can't just be reporting on what happened to you. It's It has yeah. to be a process of discovery. And you have to write the first draft or the first multiple drafts are for me to understand the story. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's any memoir writer who thinks they know it all and then are going to sit down and record it. I think they're really delusional. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very challenging, difficult process. I, um, I had to go back to therapy while I was working mm-hmm. on this book. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of things I had to sort out. I had a lot of things I had to face. I mean, one really interesting thing is that my mother and I had this correspondence from the time I was probably 17 and left home mm-hmm. um, until I was in my early 30s and we started having a little bit more contact. And I would have told you that we didn't speak at all for seven years, but after she died, I found this shoebox, big shoebox, like a boot <laughs> box full of letters. And it included all the letters she'd ever written to me, um, all the letters I'd ever written to her, first drafts of letters she had never sent me, that were really raw. I mean, some of her actual letters are really raw too. And mm. and when I went through my uh, the eaves under my office, I found a box that also had letters I had saved. And when I put them together, there was this like, I don't know, probably like three feet thick of letters. And I mean, I am a writer and she was an incredible writer, actually. I mean, her mm. letters were so vivid. It's, it's such a an art that we have lost. Mm. And this correspondence... Um, I, dr- I dreaded looking at it. I put it off for months, years, you know, and, yeah. and every time I'd pick it up, I'd like just fall asleep or I think <laughs> I got to go get stoned or, you know, I've got to do mm-hmm. anything to like not be here present with this box. But finally, I, I went on a retreat, of like a self-writing retreat, and I just brought this box of letters and I actually read them all and I was sobbing, I was weeping, mm-hmm. I was laughing sometimes and and then I was really confronted by the fact that the evidence in this letter, in these letters, uh, contradicted the storyline I had been oh. reporting to the world, you know. Oh, uh, that's so interesting. For many, many years. Uh, and so that's why I say it's, it, it's a question of truth. You know, what is the truth? And, and of course, what you write is not everything either. I mean, it's, it's very complicated. But yeah. having that physical evidence really put me on a different trajectory. And I felt like I needed Mm -hmm. to include that thread in the story of how our memory is faulty, you know, and our memory Mm -hmm. is partial. And I focused so much on the really negative aspects of my mother, of which there were many. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't give credit to her positive aspects. Mm -hmm. You know, it took me years to really see her from a much fuller perspective and to to see her from a distance, not just as my mm-hmm. mother, but as this human being who had her own history, her own trajectory, mm-hmm. her own, you know, when she grew up, she was really poor. She had immigrant parents. She was the only person in her family who went to college. She was a, a really incredible woman, but mm-hmm. she wasn't easy as a mother. <laughs> it sounds like. But she was the yeah. kind of mother that all my friends were like, I wish I had a mother like yours. And uh-huh. I was like, oh my God, you don't. <laughs> 
it's so interesting because it sounds like you were so often in your relationship in conflict. And one thing that I've noticed is when I'm in a situation where I feel really convinced that I'm correct on something and that I'm right and the other person is wrong, there's like a closing of the mind that happens. And like, I really would like to train myself when I feel that way to say, wait, stop. Why do I feel so sure? And is it possible that I'm wrong? Like, what am I missing here? Because if this other person also feels so strongly and we're at loggerheads, like there's some sort of missing piece of information or there's some way of seeing this that I'm not getting. It doesn't mean that I will ultimately agree, but it, it's interesting just just the way I've noticed personally that, that sort of the more right I feel, it may be that, that I'm actually wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, my most intense conflict with my mother was in my, I'd say, teens and 20s mm-hmm. and early 30s. And I was, you know, f- more than 40, 40 years younger than I am right now. And I, I was, a, you know, at that stage in my life, I was really seeing things in black and white. So a lot mm-hmm. of absolutes. I'm right, you're wrong. You know, the, a big conflict between us was that her father, my maternal grandfather, sexually abused me. I said it happened. She said it didn't. And, you know, so it's like, to me, she was wrong. Fuck her. You know, I mean, there was just, it was such a black and white thing. And I mean, it is, it did happen and she was in denial, but I was able to just see the whole thing. I I was able to understand after decades why she could never be there for me around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it took me a really long time um, to get there. I have a, a really dear friend I've had for many decades. And I remember she said to me something I never forgot. She said, Laura, being right is the loneliest place in the world. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's been like a meditation for me for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for listening to Emerging Form. We want to give a big shout out to a couple of our paid subscribers who have left us really kind reviews on iTunes. For instance, Jill Berkey, who recently wrote, Wonderful. I love this podcast. I feel like I'm among friends when I listen to Christy and Rosemary talk about the creative process. One day, Rosemary shared a new poem that moved me, and I knew I had to start being a paid subscriber then and there. Thank you, Jill. (laughs) Rebecca Reynolds-Weil wrote, Amazing! You will laugh and grab a pen at the same time. This is a fantastic rollicking soup of humor, depth, thoughtful and practical suggestions, and rich creativity. The two hosts are a joy, and they wrap in wonderful guests to add to the discussions. Subscribe and share this delight. What a gift. I love that they both added subscribe to other people. That's nice. I know. Isn't that sweet? Thank you so much for your support, dear listeners. You make this podcast possible. And if you want to join Jill and Rebecca, you can sign up as a paid subscriber at emergingform.substack.com. Thanks for listening. You know, it's interesting that you're talking about how you both, you know, had to, on your own, have this, oh, she's not as bad as I thought she was. And it comes through in the letters. Um, it comes through in your in your own thinking about it later. But it, I think it's kind of funny that your mom actually asks when you're talking to her about it, and you show her the, the, the version of the book and she says, can you can you make me? look better. Can you say, a, can you can say, you say some, some nice things about me? Can you me? say a few nice things about me? Is she said it. Not, not, will you make me look better? Okay. This is important. It, which that you, I think yes. is different. Yes, it is I, very I think different. It's, it's, can you just say a few nice things about me? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I thought that was pretty incredible actually. And it was easy mm-hmm. to find some things to say because there were 
good things. It's just, I had such a, you know, human beings have a negativity bias, and I absolutely yeah. did towards her. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always looking for evidence um, of how she had wronged me or later in mm-hmm. life, how she couldn't live alone. You know, I was always creating a vendetta against her. And it's interesting, you said she's not as bad. I wouldn't put it that way because she was that bad. Yeah. But mm-hmm. simultaneously, she was also loving. I mean, she was a bundle of contradictions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, Rosemary, you often are writing about how grief and gratitude coexist. Yeah. And it's the same thing. You know, her worst qualities were right there with her best qualities. Mm-hmm. And I think that these are situations where you sometimes have to hold contradictory ideas, right? I mean, what could be more awful than a parent denying a child's sexual abuse? I mean, that's just awful and seems unforgivable. And yet it may be possible that she could still love you and that, you know, she had reasons that while aren't excusable, can on some level at some point become understandable, yeah, I think it, I think it often with these kind of very complex enmeshed relationships, it takes a lifetime sometimes. And yeah. I've I've witnessed a lot that sometimes it's not till someone is has passed, you know, that someone mm-hmm. when someone is dead, they can no longer trigger you. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it becomes a lot easier to sort out your relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. my mother's been it'll be 9 years uh, just a couple of weeks from now that she died and I feel really really close to her. I mean, I, I felt connected to her before she died. Also, because she had dementia, it's like I had a different mother than the mother I had had before. And that was mm-hmm. confounding, confusing. It was an opportunity. I mean, she used to be so hypercritical of me. And then at the end of her life, it was like, Lori, you're the best daughter in the whole world. <laughs> what would I do without you? You know, it's like she was beaming this love at me that I had longed mm-hmm. for my whole life. But who was she? You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think anyone who's had a loved one with dementia uh, mm-hmm. may understand that. And I, I was kind of fortunate because my mother turned sweet. I thought for sure she would become, you know, really bitter and nasty yeah. and difficult. Instead, she she became very loving. Can can we talk? I want to go back just a little bit to this request that your mom made. You know, will you, will you say some beautiful things about me? What was the... Okay, let's see. What did we can find it exactly? Yeah. What did she actually said? Because uh, it, it it was very specific. Yeah, it was very. It was, and it was a. It, I loved that she made this request. Uh, I loved that you mentioned in the book that she made the request. Then your brother later you would you acknowledge that he also has a request for you about how to portray him. Yeah, basically the same thing. Almost the same thing. So so it was almost the same thing. Can you just say a few more? Ni- a few more nice things about Can me. Can you say a few more nice mm-hmm. things about me? So I'm just curious, uh, you know, writing a writing a book that involves other real people who are still alive <laughs> has a yeah. lot that goes with it. And and so I know that one thing you said earlier was, yeah, we could maybe talk about that, about how does it affect the people around you that you're going to be writing about them. But also when you're telling a story, how do you involve the wishes of other living people? Yeah, it's a very complicated, uh, you know, question, and there is no one answer. You know, yeah. I think each memoir writer has to really look at their circumstances individually. There is not a rule, do this, do that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my perspective on it has changed over the course of decades. I mean, my first book, uh, I was 27, 28 when I started writing it. It was published when I was 31, and I did not give a thought at all to this issue of how it was going to mm-hmm. affect anyone in my family. And I'm, I'm actually, I have no regrets at all um, mm-hmm. about it. 
And it was a, that was a book about sexual abuse. Um, but I, I think as I matured, and also I had, I had a bunch of experiences with my, especially my immediate family, where I wrote about my children and it, it, I paid a price in my relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Like I, mm-hmm. I was so hungry to tell these stories or do these things that I really kind of ran roughshod over their feelings. I wouldn't have said it at the time, but when I look back now, I was a little bit of a steamroller in getting <laughs> what I wanted and getting permission, so-called permission to do certain things. And I, I wrote some things without permission and, you know, especially with my children, I really have regrets about having done that. I, I wrote a parenting column for 10 years and, you know, the kids got involved in reading the column and helping me with it. And, um, but I think my son at one point, even as a five-year-old, he was like, I don't want you to write that anymore. He was so articulate. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I found a way to keep doing it. Um, you know, I gave him a pseudonym. He seemed to be satisfied with that. But I've often mm-hmm. wondered if the fact that I wrote about him so much has to do with the fact that he has really pretty solid boundaries with me right now. I mean, we have a nice mm-hmm. relationship, but I, he doesn't share intimately with me. Mm-hmm. And I think that may have something mm-hmm. to do with it. So mm-hmm. I feel like I've paid a price. Um, <laughs> Don't and, tell and, mom, she'll write about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just, um, I, with this book, with the, with the memoir, kind of where I am now, I, the people who were immediately involved, which was, you know, my mother, my brother, my, my spouse, Karen, and our three children, mostly the two younger children. Uh, my mm-hmm. oldest son, Brian, was barely mentioned because he, he wasn't involved at all in this. You know, he was, he was already launched as an adult and had his own family. He wasn't really involved in this story about my mother's end of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but with each of those, I told them I was writing it and they all basically gave me permission, you know, that my kids were super enthusiastic. My brother really wanted me to write it. Um, Karen, my partner, was really not thrilled at all. She's a very private person. Mm-hmm. And we've been together for 33, I think 33 years. She's super mm-hmm. private and I've been very public and I'm always writing about personal things. So I think it's been very challenging for her to have me as a spouse, although I was already an author when we met. I mean, she knew who I was. <laughs> but I, I think over the years, I really have had so much empathy for her situation. Mm-hmm. And in this book, I had to, she had to be included. I mean, it was a family saga. She was here for mm-hmm. everything, and I had to include her. And, but I did make some compromises um, mm-hmm because of her, how she felt. So I, she's a much smaller character than she might have been. I mean, mm-hmm. in real life, she was a much bigger part of this story. Mm-hmm. And I, I, um, I didn't, you know, share anything intimate about her. I, she played the role of confronting me about some things. So I included that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I think she comes off really as, you know, kind of an ideal spouse. I, I, I didn't give up. She's not fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. And I would say my kids are not fully fleshed out either. You know, they're, I, I didn't share anything vulnerable about them. I didn't, I, mm-hmm. nothing that would be uncomfortable. And um, they're human, but they're not human mm-hmm. in the way I am and my mother and my brother are in the book. Because uh, I had my brother's permission. My mother, mm-hmm. I mean, she was the, she's what I was writing about. I was certainly yeah. not going to cut any corners. I, I think I felt that the relationship between the two of us was so dramatic, powerful, yeah. and well flushed out. I felt like I could basically get away with not having everyone as fully fleshed out. And it it changed the way I constructed the book 
and the mm. scenes I included and didn't include. You know, there were certain mm. things that happened that would have been great to include. I felt like I couldn't. So I, but I was always able to work around it and find an alternative yeah. way of making that point or demonstrating something. So I didn't show them anything until many years into it. Nobody read any of it. You know, I protected mm-hmm. the work. But when I was really had a final draft, I gave it to all of them and gave them a month to read it. And this is my, these people who are in the book. And I basically said, you have a month. And what I said was, tell me if there's anything you can't live with. That was Mm -hmm. how I put it. Mm -hmm. And my brother was, you know, he was like, well, this is really hard, but okay. My Mm -hmm. kids, the the younger kids were like the most incredible editors and (laughs) helped correct a lot of uh, misinformation because my memory is poor and they're so excellent. And, And my son even created a spreadsheet that had like the dates of every event in the book and everyone's wow. age and the grades they were in. I mean, I had such a struggle with trying to be accurate. And mm-hmm. he, he really helped me. Wow. And they, they both read it a couple of times and gave me great feedback and just were like, wow, mom, I didn't know this about you. <laughs> That's cool. They were old wow. enough that yeah. I felt okay. Um, and my brother, the portrayal of him is not so flattering. He's sort of my nemesis aside from my mm-hmm. mother. He's a, he's an antagonist in the book. Interesting. And, you know, he was, he, he, he really wanted me to do it, but he did. He said, can you just say some, a few more good things about me? And I did. I went back and I, I added some things about him being a musician and the fact, because I, I focused a lot on how he didn't show up mm-hmm. when my mother was declining, you know, mm-hmm. and, but then there were some times he did show up. So I just included a little bit more and he was satisfied basically, mm-hmm. and then became a super supporter of the, of the book. There were some other relatives, um, who would have been in some of those scenes. I knew they were people who would be really upset about this book because I was bringing up this ancient history of the sexual abuse with a shared grandfather. And because Mm -hmm. I thought they're not going to like my portrayal of my mother who they loved. And I just cut those, them out of the scenes that they were, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want too many characters anyway. So I just wrote the scenes and wrote them out of it. And I didn't, those people, that constellation, I didn't tell them anything until I had a publisher and I wrote and, you know, I wrote a very different letter than I would have before. I, I felt like I wanted to inform them of what I was doing. And, you know, I basically said I made this decision. It was a really hard decision. I know it's really hard having a writer in the family. I know I'm bringing mm-hmm. up these issues that have been so incredibly painful in the past and that caused us to be estranged for many years. I hope that doesn't happen again. But mm-hmm. I had to make this decision to choose this story and you know, I'm sorry for any way this hurt you. So it was, it was both, it, I wasn't asking permission. Yeah. But I was yeah. acknowledging the fact that it impacts other people in a family when someone writes a memoir. And, you know, there's a lot of advice out there of like, you know, just tell the truth. It doesn't matter. Well, huh. I'm older. I think it does matter. Yeah. You know, and I, I have seen it matter. And that I don't feel like I compromised anything about that affected the integrity of the story, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this really gets back to something you said earlier and something I think we've talked about on this podcast before, and that is a memoir is not your whole life story. No. It's one thread. It's one. And you're you're making all of these choices and they're necessary. It's not just because you may want to protect someone. It's because, first of all, you can't you can't include every little blow by blow like that would be uninteresting. Right. And so you're making these very deliberate choices of what is the story I'm trying to tell. And this story is about your relationship with your mother. It's not about your relationship with your spouse. It's not about your relationship with your your kids. I mean, those are, are ancillary, you know, 
issues with the, with the book, but it's it's very focused on that. And, and I think that's by necessity. And then the second thing is that you don't need to ask permission to tell your own personal story, um, but it can be really smart, like you say, to really be empathetic and take into account how might this hurt other people and, and you know, who who am I okay hurting in what ways or, you know, what what power will I give to them to determine the story? I mean, it's not, it's not that it's, I, I didn't really think I'm not going to do it. It was more yeah. how I told them it was, it was yeah. presenting a harsh reality for them with compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. I could have been like, I'm doing this, you know, and you can't stop me. <laughs> and I'm telling the truth, which is how yeah. I felt when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, I'm doing this and I realize it could be hard for you. And I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's not, mm-hmm. I mean, I had the power. I, there's an example. There's um, a few scenes towards the end of the book where my mother is really advanced with dementia mm-hmm. and really hard to manage. And she has one surviving sister who lives in Florida. So my mother's mm-hmm. in assisted living in California and I decided it was like this really generous moment in my life to take my mother to Florida to see her sister one more time. And Karen went with me. There was no way one person could manage my mother. I mean, she was just, it was just so challenging to to travel with her. I mean, she wouldn't keep her seatbelt on. I mean, she was really advanced. (laughs) Uh Uh, So the two of us took her and it was such a beautiful experience. It was one of the most moving things I've ever mm. experienced was seeing these sisters who never thought that in their 80s, they mm. never thought they'd see each other again. And then knowing they were saying goodbye for the last time and the, mm. just the reunion was I, unlike anything I'd, I'd ever experienced. So I wanted to write about it. And that aunt and uncle of mine died also. They were also way up in their 80s. And I kind of waited for my mother's generation to die off before I published the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. it it just it was sort of that's a line I drew. Yeah, sure. Um, but this uh, I have a cousin, their daughter, and I didn't ask. I'm not close to her at all, and I didn't ask her permission. But I felt like I wanted to tell her that I was including her parents in the. I didn't feel like I needed her permission to do it, but I wanted yeah. her to know before she heard it because the book came out. And what I said to her was, I said, you know, I just want to tell you I've done this, and I said, would you like to give them? their pseudonyms, because I knew I wasn't going to use their real names. And she did. Oh, that's so sweet. So she named them. And Hmm. it was like, I gave her a tiny bit of control in a situation where she really had no control. And Mm -hmm. and the one I said, is there anything else you want? She said, I want you to never talk to me about this again. About because we shared the same grandfather. I said, okay, no problem. I'll never talk to you about it again. Wow, that's big. Well, that was clear. Yeah. Yeah, it was really clear. And and was I, you know, that felt that felt like mm-hmm. it, it felt like I was respecting her yeah. mm-hmm. and her position and yeah. and how painful this was for her. Oh um, yeah. You know, but on the other hand, I told, you know, I told the story I wanted. I published it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just like how did I do it? I did it with some caring for the people who were impacted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That comes across, by the way. That really does. It, mm-hmm. It's a very compassionate book. And even so, I think you can be very hard on yourself in this book. I feel self-compassion coming through for you, too. Like, I, I feel <laughs> like you wrote it with enough self-compassion that it that the overall feeling of the book is tenderness. Yeah. Right. There's a even so very difficult things happen. There's a lot of aggression and there's a lot of anxiety and, and opposition. But there's so much compassion in it and self-compassion in it. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons it took 10 years was, you know, to develop that kind of compassion, yes. you know, that compassion for everyone in the story. I mean, 
I'm never interested in reading a memoir where I have any hint of the fact that it's written for revenge. No, I mean, I'm just not interested in that kind of story. I want to see someone who has really digested their life and can see all the characters as full, flawed human beings. Yeah. Even if they're extremely flawed, you know. Yeah. Um, This is our last question. I wish we could go on for hours. And I have so many other questions (laughs) I wanted to ask you, but I'm going to end with this one. In the book, you wonder, as you're wrestling with what choices to make for your mother, you're wondering, you know, do I, do I put her in this? What, what do we do with her life? And then you wonder, what makes a meaningful life? And you don't answer that question directly in the book, but no pressure. <laughs> Laura Davis. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That's your question, Rosemary. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, that is, that's a tough one. I, I, um, I, I asked that question in the book because for many years she would say to me, if I ever have to be in a walker or wheelchair, just take me out back and shoot me. I mean, it's almost like her ongoing line and how much she hated old people. They were disgusting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she had such internal ageism. It was very intense. And then she ended up in a place where she was like using a bedpan and she was in a wheelchair and she was, she, it was all the things she said she never wanted but she actually was pretty happy. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that was the question is like, well, do I go with what she said? Because I was her power of attorney and I, had, mm-hmm. I was her medical power of attorney. And I had to decide kind of, and she had some medical issues. How much am I going to treat these issues mm-hmm. or let them go? You know, and it was a really hard, hard kind of question. And I, for her, I think she actually, um, I'm, I'm glad she died when she did. I mean, she could have lingered years longer and declined mm-hmm. way more. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I felt like her decline was swift at the end and she didn't really have anything that should have killed her. She didn't have a heart condition. She, she just had dementia uh, and, and a lot mm-hmm. then more and more anxiety. I, I don't believe that people should be kept alive at all costs. I, I, I have never believed that, you know, that the, this idea like life is, you know, at all costs must be preserved. I think people should have the right to die when they want to. I mean, that's my personal belief. I think everyone should be able to determine if they are suffering and they've had enough that they can end their lives. Well, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> that's kind of a downer <laughs> yeah, way to end it. Not but... a great way to end the show, but um, I, I, the thing I want to add is that what I saw from her watching her age is that her bar for what was acceptable kept getting lower. Yeah. And I had to respect that change and I had to mm-hmm. change along with her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I actually want to ask a follow-up to that, though, because I think, I mean, you didn't just now actually answer the question. What you said is that you thought what what she was saying before was required for her to feel like life was worth living, that that bar changed. But what did you learn through that process of, you know, lowering that bar and you accepting that lowering? Did that change the way you think of it for yourself? I think it it changed the fact that I don't know how I will feel later, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think I, I don't want to live. I don't, I certainly don't want to have dementia like my mother. And I think mm-hmm. if I, I think, oh, if I got a dementia diagnosis, you know, I would, I would choose to die rather than have that. But would I really feel that way? I realize mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Um, 
And that, that they're also, you know, people with dementia sometimes experience incredible joy and pleasure yeah. in, in life. I mean, it, it may feel really traumatic for their family members, yeah. but it's not necessarily traumatic for them. Once they get past that point of yeah. realizing what's happening to them, uh, my mother was able to connect into some freedoms mm-hmm. that she, her, mm-hmm. her ego mind had kept her from experiencing for probably 70 years or 75 since yeah. she was a little girl, you know, and... Um, it was a joy to see that. Yeah. Yeah. In my experience, these end of life decisions are are really simple and black and white when they're theoretical, but That's in right. reality, they're all always so much more nuanced and confusing and, and not straightforward. So it's, um, I, th- I think it's normal to uh, change your mind. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Laura. Uh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it so much. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.